The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Welcome to the American Negotiation Institute's podcast, where we will teach you the skills you need to get more out of life. And now your host, Kwame Christian. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Negotiation for Entrepreneurs. My name is Kwame Christian and I'm a business lawyer and I am passionate about teaching entrepreneurs like you how to get better deals for your business. Our guest today is Paul Profit. He's a seasoned entrepreneur and he was able to successfully raise over $20 million from investors for one of his startups. He's also the founder of Sundown Rundown, a nonprofit that connects entrepreneurs to investors, mentors, and other resources that can help them take their business to the next level. If you're an entrepreneur in Ohio, they have chapters in Akron, Cleveland, Canton, Columbus, Mansfield, and New Albany, Ohio. If you're outside of Ohio, don't worry. You still have access to Paul through this podcast. So before we jump into the interview, there's some points that I want to highlight. Paul gives some great insights on how to negotiate and manage relationships outside of the business and within the business team itself. He also has some great tips for startups that are interested in getting angel or venture capital funding. So without further ado, I introduce to you Paul Profit. So uh, we are here with Paul Profit, uh, one of the startup leaders in Columbus, and uh, I gave a little bit of an an intro already uh, leading into this, but I wanted to give you a chance to Talk a little bit about yourself and your entrepreneurial journey. Yeah, sure thing. So um, it is like most entrepreneur entrepreneurial journeys, uh, bumpy and with various other types of with stints with corporate and then back out into entrepreneurship. So mm-hmm. um, I think kind of where I kind of got the entrepreneurial bug was um, starting off in actually high school. Um, I worked I worked um, you know the typical part-time job but uh during high school but with a uh, small business um called um oddly enough hackers heaven it was a customized uh computer do-it-yourselfer store in in columbus ohio and um the entrepreneurs who who founded that basically um were bootstrapping that business uh they grew it to um, about 30 employees um into three different locations around central ohio um, with most entrepreneurial businesses, sometimes the entrepreneurial teams, as things grow, don't work out well together. So mm-hmm. um, they kind of broke up a little bit. Um, I became good friends with the uh, kind of the main founder of that organization. And as he kind of retooled the organization, um, got involved very much early on with the kind of the, the rebranding and the restarting up of that organization and kind of moving into the e-waste recycling business which um had a lot of very lean margins but um still a very interesting type of uh, startup community uh with that and building out um, a business from the ground up uh helped him scale that business to about um two and a half million dollars in gross revenue uh which you know is a small business but still you know pretty decent for uh, an early stage uh, startup that was running for about uh, two or three years, mm-hmm. uh, made a small exit from that business. Um, and then I went into corporate and uh, for a few years, 
uh, went back and joined a, another e-waste recycler, helped them grow their business, and then uh, jumped uh, back into higher ed, uh, went and got my master's degree, started doing a lot of work with the uh, Center for Entrepreneurship at The Ohio State University and um, got kind of bitten by the bug again and uh, actually did a couple of startups while I was getting my MBA, uh, one of which was a um, biodiesel production facility. We were able to raise about half the money, which was not a small feat. It was about um, $20 million on a $40 million project. Um, like most big projects, though, uh, we kind of saw that the uh, the alternative energy market kind of went upside down on us. And mm. so... We ripped the wiring out of it and uh, started moving on to a, a new one. And, unfort- and fortunately, uh, we got pretty far down the road without actually having to spend any investors' money. So when we had to shut down that company, we had a good uh, good handoff to the to the um, investors, basically giving back pretty much 99% of their money back and saying, here's why we can't go forward and, and burn your cash. Um, so just from that, I wouldn't really call it a failure, but... You know, from that learning experience, uh, really picked up some good um, kind of investor relationship, um, you know, kind of skills from from that from that effort. And then um, basically um, still working on a few very small um, software based startups kind of in my free time uh, with a couple of business partners. But I've been really kind of focusing a lot of my efforts with the uh, Sundown Group, which is the uh, nonprofit I founded to really kind of help connect entrepreneurs up with investors, mentors and potential talent to help uh, other entrepreneurs be able to kind of take that next step and uh, grow their businesses. That's fantastic. That is really cool. Um, what, one thing I wanted to go back for the listeners, um, you said e-waste was one of the businesses. Can you talk about what, what that is? Right. So e-waste is really what is generated from all the computers, cell phones, pieces of technology that we have generated as a modern information society. And a lot of those products have very nasty elements in them, such as mercury, um, palladium, um, and other types of uh, materials that once they land in, they end up in a landfill when they decompose, if they actually do decompose, because a lot of it is plastic, um, you know, that can cause some environmental issues. So um, mm-hmm. the two companies I was involved with was basically um, helping to helping companies figure out what to do when they throw away all of their computer equipment. Um, so that was creating streams for demanufacturing these different computers and electronic devices into kind of their raw materials, getting them recycled. So we'd have plastics go to uh, plastic recyclers the, uh, with the gold um, from the um, chips that were being recycled was that they'd be sent to uh, smelters and that gold would be turned into, uh, you know, basically gold ingot again, which would be then sold uh, back into the um, chip manufacturers to be turned into more chips. Um, mm. So we basically tried to have a zero landfill policy um, by taking in all these different types of uh, technology and finding the, the best ways to recycle it. Um, so it was, um, I always like to say we were living on the cutting edge of obsolescence um, <laughs> with, uh, with technology like that. Yeah. Um, and so We'd find aftermarkets, of course, so there'd be some computers that still had value that people could still use, so we resold those through different reselling channels, such as eBay, direct-to-consumer, things like that, um, where we uh, basically refurbished those those older computers and, and put them into into use again. We had a pretty active donation um, 
act, uh, activities with uh, some of the uh, school groups and, and school systems that were here in Ohio to uh, give underprivileged youth, uh, you know, a computer so that they can actually mm. do their homework um, at home um, and not have to rely on going to the library or having to uh, get all their work done at the computer lab um, at their school during school hours. Wow, that's phenomenal. Okay, I have a quick question. So you said with uh, one of the first businesses you were with, um, not as an owner, but as an employee, the business kind of faltered because of issues between the partners. Um, in, in your experience working with different startups and, and being a, a mentor to different entrepreneurs, do you see that as a problem often? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the entrepreneurial team is really the most important thing in terms of the success of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, going out as a solopreneur is really, really hard because, you, you know, we all don't have the – we're not all supermen and superwomen uh, to be able to run a business and have all the expertise in, you know, marketing and operations – and finance and strategy and so having an entrepreneurial team is very very important and having a good crew of people that you can trust and work together with and you know you can still have your you know professional uh, discourse and arguments and things like that which is you know healthy with any team but you know there are I've seen more startups fail because of deficiencies in the team to where one uh, you know, member of the team, uh, they have an ownership stake in the company, but then life gets in the way and their focus is pulled somewhere, but they're still not ready to let go of the company and their responsibility, even though they can't really execute on it. And so that creates a lot of turmoil in the team and usually small issues over time, if not addressed, become, you know, kind of that cancer within the team and then you've got a full-fledged tumor and then it metastasizes and you know you're you're fighting over you know uh where to go have coffee for your meeting because everyone's just not getting along with each other and you know that's one of the bigger challenges that i see with a lot of the startups is that sure you're all friends you're all uh kind of have this you know forward-looking mission to do things but then because you guys, because, you know, the startup team hasn't put down an operating agreement, hasn't quite put down the swim lanes of where. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing. New currencies come and go. Decades of savings lost in days. All showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors. I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. You know, one person's responsibility starts and where they end, you end up, you know, getting kind of this infighting that happens. Um, And then, you know, again, kind of the, uh, you know, having the different goals of the team, 
there's something I always like to say is the the specter of money showing up, which mm. um, if it looks like there might be an investment starting to happen uh, or there's investors that are interested and those investors may or may not be a good fit. Sometimes you get that one person, in the team that just wants the money because they need to make an exit because all of a sudden you find out that they have, you know, that mortgage they need to pay or they decide to buy a car and they have a car loan and, you know, kind of that unknown things that happen among partners that that show up um as you as you build out a business um those sorts of little things just kind of keep growing and creating you know those sorts of issues and and make a team fall apart right wow okay so what what advice would you have for people as they build their team and build their business what kind of things can they do beforehand to kind of um protect themselves from these kind of disputes between between themselves well you know from a from a legal standpoint you know definitely having an operating agreement is very important um you know and having this understanding that as you grow the business you know not everybody's going to be coming along for the ride at the end of the day um part of what we always say about adult supervision of of the businesses and and being an adult is that sometimes you're going to have to fire your friends uh, um, Mm -hmm. when you start up a company and that that's that's a very tough thing to do and you know when I say fire I don't mean from you know hand the pink slip they show up one day and they can't log into anything but you know at some point there's going to be someone that was part of the original founding crew that is going to be exiting the company um, it may be a forced exit because of behavior, or it might be, you know, the ones where you can only, you know, people's skill sets can only take them so far in, in growing the company. Um, at some point, if you think you're going to be the CEO of a company and your expertise is only in running companies that generate, you know, half a million dollars in revenue, and all of a sudden you're faced with, global expansion and things like that, you're going to want to hire in a CEO that knows how to do those things. So um, as a founder or as the current CEO, you're going to have to have the discipline to basically fire yourself as CEO and hire somebody else in that's got the skill set to carry the business forward. Um, So those are the kinds of things, you know, there's kind of that thinking um, of, of, you know, not putting yourself first, but putting the the organization first and the, the growth of the company first, and then having, you know, basically the rules of the road of how people are going to operate through through an operating agreement um, and how, you know, ownership transfers at different points or actually how ownership is assigned. Um, those sorts of things are very important to have um, at the very start of it um, so that as things grow, as things start to get messy, people can refer back to, you know, hey, here's what we all agreed upon and and here's how things need to go. Right. Wow. You know, it's funny. The timing of this interview is really interesting because I have three meetings with clients today. Two have already happened. And those two, both of those businesses are um, business owners dealing with bad partners because they didn't think ahead. They don't have agreements written written out in a way that's... uh, that has much foresight because now a lot of times people are using these um, these form agreements like from legal zoom and whatnot um, but you know it takes a little bit more than a form to be able to look into the future and and foresee those kind of problems that you're going to have in uh, in your business so it takes a lot of customization and, and thought to, to right. do it right 
Exactly. And, you know, it, it, you know, when getting into a, a business with a partner, I mean, it is almost like a marriage. And, mm-hmm. you know, you know, as the statistic goes, 50% of marriages, you know, end in divorce. Well, you know, companies end in divorce as well. Um, and sometimes those divorces get very, very, very contentious and bloody and nasty. And, you know, if you don't have a prenup, um, you know, <laughs> right. you're, you're kind of you're kind of screwed. And, and that's really what the operating agreement does and, and um, being able to lay out those those rules. And and honestly, it also goes to picking your partner, too, when it comes to to getting in business with someone. It's like, you know, oh, I didn't know that my uh, buddy Bob um, was a gambler and like mm. hitting the clubs too much. Um, you know, those are things you got to kind of find out. You know, they might be this great business person and they have all these great connections. But when you look at their personal life, it's a total hot mess. And you got to make sure that, you know, that their personal life doesn't impact, you know, their business decisions and things like that. So, um, you know, you really got to get to know your partners, you know, warts and all, as they say, um, <laughs> to make sure that, you know, you can get along with them. Yeah. Wow. That's great advice. That is great advice. Okay. Let's, let's shift for a little bit. Um, let's move towards the investment side. Cause I know every entrepreneur has that dream of, of getting on Shark Tank and making that uh, that million dollar deal, but you've had that experience not with Shark Tank though, but but with uh, getting successfully finding investors for your business. So can you talk a little bit about how you were able to do that? Um, really, I mean, there is really no silver bullet for getting investors um, into your company or into your organization or or whatever you're trying to do. Um, the thing that got us money um was really finding an investor that knew the industry that we were in um that had experience in that industry and could actually add value to what we were doing so we were very strategic about who we were pitching to we made sure that the people who we were talking to were people who invested in oil and gas um yes this was a related industry it was slightly different but you know the production process of biodiesel is very similar to the production process of distilling oil mm-hmm. um so we were looking for investment groups that have backed drilling oil you know the the, the people the wildcatters that would you know spend millions of dollars just poking holes in the ground hoping that they would you know find oil um, that was the same, those were, that was the people with the risk tolerance that we were targeting. And so we didn't really approach anybody in the central Ohio area because, you know, a lot of their backing has been technology based startups. And even though there was a technology component to it, we were investing in big, heavy machinery. And mm-hmm. these companies are these, the, the funds and the angel investors in central Ohio they don't invest in big, heavy, heavy machinery. So we didn't really even really kind of waste our time going after people that we knew would say no to us initially because it wasn't in the fit. So what we did um, when we were seeking out investors was we focused on those investors who had invested in things like us before, um, were looking to, you know, do more investment and were, you know, and understood the risk that, that we were getting into by, trying to enter into a new market that would have a payout, you know, 10, 15 years down the line, as opposed to an exit in 18 to 36 months. Right. So those were the people that we targeted for finding investors. We didn't jump and scream from the rooftops, 
hey, we're looking for startup investment. Uh, one, well, one, because that would run into some SEC issues. But but number two, um, you know, if you're just screaming from the rooftops, you're screaming from the rooftops like everybody else is. But having a very good targeted message and why it would be great for an, for that particular investor is is how we were able to get our, our investors um, into our biodiesel thing. Interesting. Okay. That, that's a fascinating story because I think that's what a lot of people end up doing. They just say, hey, if anybody is interested in investing in a company, I know a guy and that guy is me. <laughs> but I, I like to see your strategy. That, that's fascinating. And I think that's good advice too. Yeah. I mean, it, investors do not invest in things that they don't understand. So as an entrepreneur, as you're seeking for, as you're seeking investors, you want to you want to pitch to the people that understand your market. You don't want to spend ninety percent of your presentation saying, "Here's what, you know, here's what a bit is, and here's what a byte is, and here's what you know, here here's what an iPhone is." I mean, if those are the types of people that you're trying to pitch your software application to, they're not going to get it, mm-hmm. um, and they're not going to invest in you. So, so spending a lot of time figuring out who your investment audience is and making sure that they fit into what you're trying to do as a business is very, very important. So it's not like the, the shark tank mentality where you, where you stand up and you, you pitch an idea to, to six investors and those six investors start, you know, fighting over each other to, to, you know, get in on a deal. Um, it just doesn't work that way. It's, um, it's months of meetings and uh, months of due diligence and and a very hard, long road to slog before someone trusts you enough to part with their hard-earned dollars and invest it in your company. Hmm. That's interesting. Okay, so now let's say we've made it through these meetings and the due diligence is done, and now it's time to really work out that deal. As far as like negotiation strategy goes, how did you go about getting a deal that was fair for you while still retaining a good amount of equity or, you know, doing what's best for your business? Right. So we, we came in with an understanding of what our, what our valuation um, of the business was, what we were bringing to the table. Um, So for instance, if you say I'm raising a million dollars and I'm only going to give you 2% of the company for 100K, uh, investors are going to go, well, you don't know how to do math because <laughs> that's technically 10% of the company at your current valuation of a million dollars for 100K, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, things like that um, make, it, make it tough for investors to really want to do things with you. And, and likewise, you know, if an investor comes and says, you know what, your, your company's worth a million dollars. I'm only going to give you a hundred K, but I want 80% of your company. You know, as an entrepreneur, you should just kind of walk away from that deal because then you know that that investor is going to money whip you until you are not in business anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, or it's a, it's a game to, to take your company. So what we usually say is, you know, if it, depending on, you know, it, it all comes down to the valuation of your company and being able to justify that valuation. Um, and that is, you know, you're going to, as an entrepreneur, you're going to kind of highball the valuation. And then as the investor, you're going to kind of lowball the valuation. So coming in at, at whatever kind of middle ground um, 
is, is what I would call a good a good spot to be at. I always like to say that if you're on the term sheet, if neither the investor nor the entrepreneur is 100% happy with the deal, you've probably made a good deal. Um, hmm. Just because you know the entrepreneur is not going to get everything they want and the investor is not going to get everything they want. So if you're I'm going to say if you're both not, you know, unhappy about it, but you're not like um, doing backflips over over the deal, you you've probably made a good deal because um, that way it's it's fair to the investor and it's fair to you as the entrepreneur. Um, so that's that's usually how I try to, to play things with with valuations, um, you know, being able to justify the valuation and making sure that the investment that is, that is put into that. Um, that the percentage of ownership, you know, is 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 in line with the valuation of that company. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I like it a lot because it kind of demystifies the process because it's not it's not magic or anything. We're not trying to use sleight of hand to to get more than what the business is, is worth. Like you said, it it often just comes down to the valuation, which is simple math. Right. And it's and, and valuations, as you talk to venture capitalists and angel investors they're like so how do you come up with the valuation of an early stage startup they kind of just smile and wink and go you know they lick their finger and they stick it up in the air and they go yeah that's about what that company's worth um wow it it really is i mean you have a asset that has not an open market to to justify the valuations of it so the best you can do is like in real estate and find comps so you know, hey, we're building the next, you know, Instagram and we're just launching right now. And so what was Instagram worth when they were just launching? It's mm-hmm. like, OK, well, they're they're worth maybe three million dollars. And so, OK, so Instagram at, at the stage that we're at right now is worth about three. We're coming into a competitive market. Maybe we're actually only worth about two because we're fighting up against Instagram and all this other fun stuff. And so you really have to kind of come up with a realistic number and if you kind of walk the investor through of how you came up with that number and show those justifications you'll get head nods and they're like okay this is this is someone who understands math and understands valuations and yeah i trust them so yeah let's do it because honestly your number is going to be no no better than what the than what the investor comes up with because you're both looking at the same type of research and you're both assigning a value to something that you know has no value until you assign it right okay that's interesting so beyond the numbers when you're looking for an investor i know you mentioned you wanted somebody who's actually in that industry is there anything else that is of value that you try to get other than just the money and investment from them oh yeah definitely um they if they have industry connections uh to the industry that we're in um if they um have expertise if they've done other startups in the past that are in in the space that that you're playing in um if they if they've come from industry and you know they've made a big exit say if you're say i'll give the alternative energy example you know if they came out of oil and gas with a big exit they're very they're still looped into that industry you're going to leverage them for you know not only industry connections as i mentioned but just their knowledge of how the industry is run and, and what they can do to add to the business. Um, investors are not just cash. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if investors were just cash and behaved like banks, then just go to the bank. You can probably get debt at a much cheaper value than what you'd be getting early stage startup money from. Oh, wow. um, 
because it because you know they they want to return on their investment they want to beat the market those investors do so they're looking at you know anywhere between a 2x to a to a 10x you know return on their investment whereas for a bank they just care if you cover the debt service on the loan you know they let you refinance that loan 500 times Um, as long as you keep paying those interest payments hey bank's happy right so um so the investor adds more than just cash um you know they they can be an advisor uh, they can be at a mentor, um, you know, all those things that you need, um, you know, for your company. I, you know, I always look at, at investors as additional adult supervision um, for the company. And um, and, you, and as an early stage startup, you can't get enough adult supervision to help, you know, avoid the, the expensive pitfalls of, you know, you know, knowing which which rocks to kick over and which ones to completely leave alone because there's something underneath it that's going to bite your company and kill you. Yeah. Um, those are all very important things to, to know. And, and having someone who has already made those mistakes and um, is is very important to have on your team. Right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. And you know what's really interesting to me about this is uh, to be able to come to those conclusions. It takes a lot of humility to realize like. There, there are things that I'm missing, and I would benefit from a, additional adult supervision. And I guess that's one of the traits of a, a, a good entrepreneur, knowing where you're weak and knowing who you can add to the team to, to really um, take you to the next level. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, you're putting a team together. Um, and, you know, as much as, you know, LeBron James can, can you know, basically score on anybody – um, during a game, I mean, he needs his other teammates on the Cavs to actually, you know, be able to make a win, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you could be the best leader on the planet. You could have some great skill sets, but you don't have them all. You don't have, you're not connected, you're not wired up to every investor on the planet. Um, you're not wired up to, you know, all the industry experts that you need. And, you know, and you may not have the, the gray hairs that are needed, you know, through through uh, stress and experience, not not necessarily through age, uh, of going through, you know, one of these rodeos, um, you know, before. And I just mixed a whole ton of metaphors there. So, <laughs> I like uh, it. I like it. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so now let me ask you this: When it comes to getting the, those um, those additional qualities from the investors, are those things that you ask for explicitly in in the meetings? That's that's what I look for, and it's really you do your due diligence on the investor as much as they'd be doing due diligence on you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to go in and pitch an investor who I know is a jerk who's going to give you an egregious term sheet and and put you over a barrel and make it very hard to work with, or someone that has, you know, like I said, that invests in software and I'm trying to start a biodiesel plant you know, that's, I already know that there's not going to be a good fit there, that there's not going to be, you know, someone that I'm going to be able to work with that I'm going to get value out of. So, you know, like I said, it's, it's targeting those investors who can help your company be successful, um, beyond just the, the, uh, the cash portion of things. Um, so that's that's really what I try to look for with investors, and you can get that through, you know, investor profiles, looking at what they what they've um, invested in. Um, a lot of the people that I approach uh, for investors, I don't approach them 
for cash right off the bat. I actually work on building a relationship with them, um, you know, sit down and have coffee and, you know, talk to the, you know, uh, talk to some of the local fund managers here in town and be like, oh, so what do you guys do? What are you looking for? And really kind of get to know them and see how they, you know, respond uh, to the universe. I mean, if you if you take them out to lunch, you know, do they do they are they nice to the the waiter and the waitress or do they are they complete jerks about it? You know, I mean, things like that that clue into their their personality. And if you're able to work with them, I mean, those are the things that you really want to to look at when dealing with investors. Um, because, like I said, if the investor is not there to where you're able to work with them, they can bring additional things to the table besides money. I mean, you can if you look in the right places, if you're just looking for money, you can get money anywhere. I, I love that point because it's funny. This is something that uh, my other friend John said in the last interview. Um, really, there's no real beginning and end point for the negotiation. You're always in that negotiation position because, like you said, with that, with your endeavor to get lunch with these people and learn more about them, information gathering is is really the first stage in any negotiation. And you're, what you're doing is you're positioning yourself within the community to show that you are of value and seek value from other people. I think that I think that's great advice. Yeah, I mean, honestly, when I've talked with other investors, they're like, they hate it when people show up cold to them and ask them for money. Hmm. You know, it's not so much that, you know, hey, take me out to dinner, wine and dine me, those sorts of things, you know, take me on a date. It's really the... They, they do, investors don't want to be seen as just a piggy bank. Right. Um, they they want to they want to contribute to society too. They want to contribute their value and their knowledge. Um, and sure, they bring along some cash, which which helps uh, you know kind of grease the wheels of your of your company and get things going. But you know they want to be productive, you know, citizens in society as well. Which is you know why they're investors and why they invest in startups. If they didn't want to do that they would just give all their money to their broker and say you know go throw this in the stock market i'll i'll take my you know 1.6x return on procter and gamble stock after i hold it for five years i mean they they want to be actively involved and engaged with companies as well Mm -hmm. that's interesting okay well let's end with this i have um this is a question i'm going to ask everybody uh, what is your negotiation philosophy? Like, what tips would you give to other entrepreneurs as they utilize this skill to move their business forward? Um, I've always come away with with negotiation of the fact that as long as it's you come out with a win win scenario where it's not a you know a win loss or or you're trying to you know take everything from from your opponent when it's when it's super confrontational. Um, I just, I feel like that's not a good, good way to approach negotiation. I know some people approach negotiation as a winner take all. Um, you can kind of see our, our, uh, potential Republican nominee. And if you've read his books, yeah, um, it kind of takes a winner take all approach to negotiation, which is, is not good because that's how you make enemies. That's how you create, you know, not a good environment. Um, I always say that as long as both people walk away from the table um, satisfied, but again, not, you know, as I mentioned before, you know, one party sitting there doing backflips and the other person's thinking about jumping out of a window when it's <laughs> after, 
you know, that, that that's not healthy negotiation. That's not a, a healthy deal. Um, if you walk away, if both parties walk away satisfied, but maybe with a little bit of a bad taste in their mouth, um, you know, not everyone got what they wanted, but they needed, mm-hmm. then I consider that a, a good negotiation and a good deal that was been that has been put together um you know always have your you know um always have your batna as they say your best uh, alternative your your best next alternative in your in your uh, in your back pocket so that um if a negotiation does go south you can at least walk away and go you know pick up what you need somewhere else maybe not at the best ideal terms but you know having that plan b having that plan c is always good and then even in your negotiations, having that fallback position to where, you know, it's not ideal, but yeah, it's good enough. It'll get the job done. Right. Um, I don't know. So it's kind of a, a more, more of a Zen philosophy to, to negotiation than a, than a art of war philosophy. I guess. <laughs> no, I like it. Cause I, I, I come from the same negotiation school. Um, and I'm glad you brought up uh, Mr. Trump because when you look at his business dealings, really, um, you can tell he's been successful and the, his negotiation style works for him. But one thing that we need to consider is that we are not positioned similarly to Mr. Trump. Um, I can't negotiate like him because I don't, I'm not sitting on um, $10 billion. So I can't just swing my weight around and, and force people into deals um, without much creativity or flexibility. Um, when, when you're in a position where you have less resources, you need to be a lot more accommodating and a lot more flexible and creative to, to come up with a solution that works for everybody. Yeah, exactly. And, and honestly, when you're, when you're a early stage startup, you're, you're negotiating from a, a position of not a lot of power. Um, and so, you know, you really have to be that, that Zen master and, and uh, know some Kung Fu to use the weight <laughs> of your opponent against you a little bit or against them a little bit so that you can, uh, you know, come out ahead. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for this, Paul. This is, this is really helpful. Yeah, it's a total pleasure. So I hope you enjoyed this episode with Paul. He had a lot of great tips for you that you can actually use as you move your business forward. And if you are a business owner and you want to get a list of negotiable business expenses, go to AmericanNegotiationInstitute.com slash list. There's a link to that in the description as well. That free list will give you an idea of some of the business and personal expenses that you can actually negotiate. And hopefully you'll be able to save some money at the end of the year. If you are, shoot me an email. I'd love to hear how it went. Thanks again for listening. And if you like this episode, please rate and subscribe. We really appreciate the support. And I am looking forward to seeing you in the next one. I'll catch you later.